Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut as we analyze and comment on this week's tech news. We've got stories from Google, Microsoft, HPE financial results, and more. We're sponsored today by Palo Alto Network, and they're excited to introduce a fundamentally new approach to cloud-delivered security with Prisma Access 2.0. You can find out more about the upcoming Prisma Access 2.0 launch event happening March 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific. You'll also hear about the latest industry trends and customer perspectives from industry leaders. You can register at start.paloaltonetworks.com slash prisma dash access dash the number two dash launch or find the links in the show notes for network break. And after the news, we have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation on SD-WAN. We talked to Fortinet SD-WAN customer Wavin. They're a solutions provider for the building and infrastructure industry. Wavin's deployed SD-WAN at more than 100 sites to support a cloud migration and protect both factory and office environments. It's an interesting conversation, so stick around for that. Yeah, it was an interesting one because his job is to put networks in where there's no infrastructure. Before the cables are pulled in, he's got a building site, and he's talking about how he used SD-WAN to get bandwidth where he never had bandwidth before. Right. All right, let's dive into the news first. Starting in 2022, Google says it will no longer use third-party cookies to track users' browsing activity across the web. In a blog post posted by Google on March 3rd, the search giant wrote, quote, Today, we're making explicit that once third-party cookies are phased out, we will not build alternate identifiers to track individuals as they browse across the web, nor will we use them in our products. Uh, so what does this mean? There's a lot in there. <laughs> there sure is. You remember over the last months, we've talked a little bit about Safari moving to block third-party cookies. That's where a cookie is laid down from a site that's not the site that you're actually on. And then when you go to the another site, the third-party cookie can then be verified to track you as you move from site to site. Yep. And then because the, the person who laid the cookie down knows where you're going, they can build a profile out of you and then target you. And there's been a lot of concern both uh, as a society and as a political thing that the amount of data that's being bled is that there's fundamentally a corporate surveillance thing. Yes. Uh, so Safari and Firefox over the last year or so have announced that they will block third-party cookies and have continued to do so. Firefox takes it a step further, I think, and actually puts everything that the website does in a in a jail, if you like. So Yes, that's it, right. Even if it tries to lay down, it can lay down a third-party cookie, if, if you like, but it just sits in, it can't be accessed when you leave the site that you right. actually surfed onto. Right. And notable here is that Google Chrome has been refusing to implement such technologies. Google said, no, we don't, we need those. We want that. It's part of our value proposition is that we believe that by tracking users extensively, knowing as much information about them allows us to display the best possible ads. Also, that is self-serving because it also is a fundamental tenet of Cisco's business model. Uh, so you mean Google's week, business model? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so um, the interesting part here is that Google announced it and everybody went, oh, Google's turning off third-party cookies. You know, yay, Google catching up. That's good, starting to care about users. But what it's actually doing is when you go a bit further and do some more reading is that Google's actually implementing something called Flock, which is federated learning of cohorts. Mm -hmm. And what it's doing is it's replacing the third-party cookies that come from the server and then sit in the browser waiting to be read with an agent that goes into the web browser. Now, they uh, basically believe that proposing that your browser collects information fits you into the cohort with a few thousand others, and then will supply that information to advertisers. So you will be tracked by your browser, not by a cookie anymore. Does that make sense? Yes, although the idea is they're stripping out uh, you know, some of that individual precise targeting about you and just dumping you into a bucket with thousands, presumably, of other people. So it's sort of a little bit of a step toward privacy, but not that much. I read that as a bit of sophistry, like that's a bit of spin. At the end of the day, 
they're still tracking you, right? Right. They're just <laughs> letting the browser do it instead of the browser that they control rather than third-party cookies. Yeah, that's right. So in effect, your browser becomes the data harvesting tool. There's an API in the browser, and then the advertiser can query the browser for information about you. What is it you want? What is the profile of you? So that they can then send you an ad that relates. I think that's what Google's trying to achieve here. And uh, they call it, uh, they a lovely piece of marketing here, they call it a privacy sandbox, <laughs> which is nothing of a sort. It's, yes. a, it's the opposite. So the, the sort of stuff that's going on is pretty scummy from Google in that way. They say the browser uses machine learning algorithms to develop a cohort based on the sites that the individual visits. The algorithms might be based on the URLs or on the content of the pages or on the other factors. I have a problem with that because most users won't understand that. In other words, Google's going to classify you into a cohort on some unknown methodology. Right. And unknowable. You don't, because the algorithms are variable and changeable, which is what you want in a way. You want the business to iterate and go forward. But equally, very difficult for a user to understand what's being done here. Anyway, Google goes on to say, the central idea is that these input features to the algorithm, including your web history, are kept local on the browser and are not uploaded elsewhere. The browser only exposes the generated cohort. So it summarizes the data, puts you into a bubble and then tells the advertiser what bubble that you're in, if that makes sense. Yep. The browser may further leverage other anonymization methods such as differential privacy. The number of cohorts should be small to reinforce that they cannot tell it. So it's basically they're still profiling you just as they would have with the third-party cookie, but it's done in your browser. How do you feel about that? Do you think that's okay? Now, keep in mind here, Drew, we need to come at this not so much from a personal privacy because Network Break is about enterprise IT. I think it's an enterprise IT issue as well. Yeah, I, well, I guess I am coming up from a personal privacy perspective and more of a technological regulation or market perspective. I, I think first, if you read, we have a whole bunch of Google links uh, to blogs where they're writing about this that you should check out. And every one of them starts essentially by saying, if there is no advertising on the internet, there is no internet. So they're trying to sort of scare people into saying, we need advertising, otherwise the internet goes away, which is also very self-serving. Uh, mm. I, I feel like Google is worried about government regulation. They know regulation is coming. They're worried about maybe even antitrust regulation splitting them up. So what they've done here is created a story where they, next time, get hauled before Congress can say, look, we are taking privacy very seriously. And there's my sarcastic air quotes around seriously, because mm -hmm. we've made these changes. But what they're doing is putting the onus on the end user, particularly with Chrome, to sort of figure out all these privacy settings in the privacy sandbox and you know, 99.9% .9 of users are going to not bother. So <laughs> yeah. it, it feels like, you know, it, it's not, the spin is, this is Google taking a, a major step toward user privacy. It's not. It's definitely not a step towards privacy in that, um, you know, they're harvesting at least as much data as they always have uh, about you and what you do, I think. Um, perhaps more because it's all in the browser and they're going to justify it uh, to, and they're putting themselves in a very good position for the politicians, for the regulation by saying, yes. well, it's not us that's collecting the data, it's the user. And the user agrees to give us their data. Right, because we now right? allow them to <laughs> try to configure these complicated controls of, for privacy, yes. That's right. And I feel that um, that's a winning strategy with governments because especially the US government, which believes that, you know, in the primacy of the of the individual and its political system. Other political systems will vary, of course. Um, and but the US government matters most because that's where Google as a company pays its taxes and is where it's on the stock. Where it's market, domiciled, right? yeah. Yeah. And probably the bulk of its revenue comes from the US as well. 
So, you know, this ability to say, but users have choice. They can either give us their data or not, or, and, but they're still collecting the same amount of data, if not more, except the browser is doing the work. The challenge here is for corporations is that same data is available to vendors or people who are trying to sell you stuff or to people inside your organization. If you're a, um, we've seen a rising number of cases of security where they've been using uh, ad data, ad targeting data to find people inside your customer, inside of your company who are purchasing and then targeting those people with Facebook ads or whatever to try and fish them to get access to corporate information and steal money or corporate secrets or industrial espionage. So I believe this is a, the personal issue is obvious and I'll leave you to solve your personal issues in your own time. But I believe this is much more of a corporate security issue than most people seem to think. And, and that's a common theme that we've had here for a while. Yeah. In any case, a ton of links in the show notes. Go read up about it. Uh, also, I would point you toward an EFF uh, link about how Flock, that uh, federated uh, cohort idea, is terrible. <laughs> so please go check it out and we'll move on. Yep. Uh, last week, Microsoft announced that it detected, quote, multiple zero-day exploits, end quote, that were being used against on-prem versions of Microsoft Exchange. The exploits enabled remote attackers to access email accounts including the full contents of inboxes and install more malware so the attacker can maintain a foothold in the environment. Microsoft has released patches and is recommending immediate installation. Yeah, so not much to say here. I'm pretty sure that anybody who runs an Exchange server has had the information in their hands and they've probably taken steps by now, or at least I'd like to think so. I think the interesting thing about this is just how comprehensive this vulnerability is. You need nothing but this vulnerability to access email accounts and take all the email. So if your exchange server is fundamentally presented to the internet and then done, yeah. Yeah, there's a security company called Velexity. They partnered with Microsoft in the research uh, and they actually, I think, were first to detect the exploit. They've got a blog, it's in the show notes that has some technical details and you know, it's it's a little tricky, but it's not really that complex. There wasn't a lot of you know finagling that had to go on for the attackers to exploit this, so a little scary. Yeah, I think so. It's really, and it's a really comprehensive. I think the other side of this too is that Microsoft obviously isn't throwing the resources at Exchange that it used to. It sees its future as hosting Exchange in the cloud. And this might be another time, this will be another, you know, nail in that coffin that says it's time to get rid of your on-prem Exchange and start moving to, to the off-prem versions and, and hot, you know, rent it out in the cloud. I suspect that's where Microsoft efforts are now. Uh, one other note, uh, this will tie into a story we're going to talk about later. Microsoft is attributing the attack with, quote, high confidence to a group associated with the Chinese state. So it does sound like Microsoft saying this is a state action. Uh, related to that, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security has released instructions to federal agencies to patch immediately or pull those exchange servers offline entirely. Uh, the instructions also say that uh, these federal agencies should examine their exchange infrastructure for indication of a compromise. Yeah, and that obviously reflects the seriousness of it. I think the vulnerability is more widely known, but it's actually being actively exploited by Chinese um, actors. Uh, and the general presumption or the general attack that we're seeing in the announcements uh, from the US government is saying that it's actually the Chinese government hacking US companies here. Yeah. So, you know, take that as you will. There's not a lot of proof, you know, that the big challenge around the cyber attacks is attribution and clear yeah. lines of responsibilities, who did what. And of course, that's very difficult um, to do. But uh, I think the the Homeland Security uh, putting out those announcements is a reflection of the seriousness of it and potentially even the attribution. Yeah. But who knows? 
All right, uh, moving on. Anuda Networks, they make software for closed-loop data center automation and orchestration. They have announced a SaaS version of their Atom platform. Atom can do things like automate device onboarding. It's got configuration management, service provisioning, OS upgrades, and other common network operations. Yeah, the Anuda platform, we've spoken recently about it. They've had a very strong partnership with Juniper um, as part of the Paragon transition yep. that's going on inside of the Juniper portfolio. Yep. And we've obviously had Anuda on the podcast uh, for the last four or five years now. Yeah, as a sponsor. And they're an orchestration platform. The idea there is that you orchestrate pla um, configuration on lots of devices to configure a service. So if you wanted to configure a label path across an MPLS network, which is multi-vendor using multiple different types of MPLS, then Anuda's got a platform that can bring that together. Or if you want to deliver a service that involves firewalls and load balances and so forth, then this is a tool that can do it for you. Very big in 5G, they're getting traction there. Um, they did originally launch this as a SaaS version, but I don't think they got a lot of take up. Is that pretty much right? Yeah, when I we, we got a briefing on this and then I was just checking, you know, on Packet Pushers what we had covered before. And I saw back in 2018, they had announced... Um, a SaaS version of Atom. And I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> why are they announcing it again? So I reached out mm -hmm. to them and yes, they did launch a SaaS version back in 2018, but I guess it was a bit ahead of where customers were. So they sort of mothballed it and now are relaunching it um, because it, it appears that more service providers and enterprises are getting comfortable with SaaS. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I have to give out a mere culpa here because when I first saw cloud-based services or this idea that vendors would host SDN controllers in the cloud, I was deeply opposed to them. Primarily on the basis that most vendors couldn't get it right on a single box, like they couldn't get a router to run right. How are we going to trust them to write SDN software to operate at scale? And uh, over time, we've sort of been proven that that's not so much the problem. We don't tend to see massive problems of software in the cloud. And somehow they've actually gotten onto the idea of cloud development and DevOps and, and embraced that to produce reasonably high quality code. So I do think you know, maybe 2018 was too early, but in 2021, the market's ready for it. I did pick up during the briefing that we got from Anuda that they were very quick to say, this allows for customers to do rapid proof of concepts to try before they buy. Yep. So even if you want the on-premise version, you can go to the SaaS, click on a few things. You can even point it directly to Cisco DevNet instances and start doing service orchestration to get the idea of how it works. Um, and that sort of bottom-up selling, they call that. The, the idea is that, that you get the customer to use a product and then you can sell it from the bottom up yeah. um, because they've used the product instead of trying to force it as a top-down, start at the CIO and work down. Much cheaper to sell bottom-up than it is top-down. That's pretty much why they do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the idea there is I think partly this is allow rapid proof of concept or rapid evaluation by customers because you don't have to do anything, just go into the cloud, spin it up. You can even go quite far down the path without having to commit to an on-site deployment or whatever. Um, but, you know, overall, I think Anuda and Adam have really proven out over time. They've managed to sustain the business and they're now uh, chalking up a large number of, win or, you know, wins, they, their, their portfolio of, of customers or what they call uh, logos in their portfolio continues to grow. So maybe there's something there. Yeah, and certainly the partnership with uh, Juniper and Paragon was a feather in Anuda's cap. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the flip side of your uh, notion about SaaS and vendors not being able to write good software is that a lot of enterprises and, and big companies were just uncomfortable with putting their own data into a cloud run by somebody else. Uh, and we're seeing that confidence now increase because uh, there are so many companies doing it that I think you know putting sensitive configuration data in the cloud to be operated on and looked at by somebody else is not so much a deal breaker as it used to be. Yeah, I think that's right. And 
I think people are getting comfortable with the fact that services hosted in the cloud have their benefits. I do have concerns, you know, three to five years down the track when customers realize they can't just stop using it, you know, stop paying for it and then just keep using it, which is something that we've always done. Uh And I think there's going to be a change uh, on how customers see these products, but that's three to five years away. That's not something people care about. So, yeah. All right, links in the show notes if you want to find out more. A quick break to tell you about our sponsor today, Palo Alto Networks. Enterprises are adopting a hybrid cloud strategy to meet the demands of remote work now more than ever. Unfortunately, legacy secure access solutions leave remote workers vulnerable to threats. Palo Alto Networks is excited to introduce a fundamentally new approach with Prisma Access 2.0. It's the industry's only complete cloud-delivered security platform and provides more security coverage than any other solution. You can find out more about it at the Prisma Access 2.0 launch event on March 17th, 10 a.m. Pacific. You'll also hear about the latest industry trends and customer perspectives from industry leaders. So don't settle for incomplete security. Learn about Palo Alto Networks Prisma Access 2.0, the industry's only complete cloud-delivered security platform. Wednesday, March 17th, and you can register at start.paloaltonetworks.com slash prisma dash access dash the number two dash launch or find the link in Network Break 323. All right, back to the news. There's a new open source web app firewall out there. It's called CuryFence. It's uh, targeted for cloud native deployments. It's also a sandbox project within the Linux Foundation's CNCF organization. Now, you had a briefing on this. I've only had enough time to sort of do a paper review here on the website. It looks like a fairly competent, if simplistic, application firewall product to me. Is that about where you got? I mean, yeah, pretty much. They It, it, it ticks all the right boxes for a web app firewall. It's covering like the OWASP uh, top 10. It's doing um, API filtering and security. It can also do app level DDoS protection. Um, so yeah, it ticks all those app firewall boxes. And on the cloud native side, essentially what it's doing is plugging into that Envoy sidecar proxy uh, and intercepting your HTTP and then running through all the security checks that you'll put in place. Yeah, I had a look at it. It's sort of like um, where application firewalls were about five years ago, I want to say. So it's doing all of the sorts of things that you wanted to do in a firewall, which is um, uh, web traffic inspection, API management and control, mm-hmm. bot management, WAF, application layer, DDoS, session profiling, that sort of stuff, rate limiting as well. It all seems to be they're claiming that those are all features that are standard in the product. It runs in a VM so it's a or a container. So the idea is, is that it comes with APIs and the ability to run just as a load type thing. The question here is compared to, if you're asking me where, how does this compare to say to Palo Alto or some other application grade firewall, Fortinet, I think the thing that's missing here is those companies have gone out and bought threat feeds and DNS firewalling functionality, and they're using AI for fingerprinting of malicious applications. And there's a whole bunch of real-time intelligence being fed into the firewalls these days. You pay for a security service where the firewall um, rules look more like an IDS of old. Mm-hmm. You know, the rule sets are constantly updated and adapted as the threats change and you actually pay them to give you a feed. And that possibly is the only gap between this product and aside from how it oper- like how it deploys, it doesn't deploy in a hardware appliance like PFSense or whatever. Um, it doesn't have those real-time threat feeds. That would be the the thing that differentiates it in my mind. Uh, I th- with web app firewalls, I'm having to dig into my memory now, but they always sort of were carved out as a separate category from your traditional network firewall in that because they were mm. so focused on layer seven, they could peer into the actual transaction and look for things like SQL injection, cross-site scripting, malformed requests, that kind of thing that 
the traditional firewall wasn't doing. I don't know that next-gen firewalls have built in those capabilities, and you wouldn't necessarily want them to because if you're dealing just at the app tier, you want to have that more precise layer of inspection. Uh, so that's always been the business case to me for web app firewalls. Yeah, you want to go beyond the IP address filter or the TCP port. Yeah. And so you get into application inspection. And when you're in application inspection, you can start to do a whole bunch of stuff. You start doing SSL termination or you can... And then the advanced app firewalls moved into things like rate limiting HTTP. So what was a load balancing function before becomes a firewalling function. Yep. And session profile and bot management and that sort of stuff. That was where we were five years ago with, but this is free. This is an open source project. Yes, although um, I should note there is a commercial version from a company called Reblaze and Reblaze also happened to develop the open source software and is maintaining it. So there's that uh, commercial and open source duality yeah, that, going on. Yeah. The commercial open source type of thing. Yep. <laughs> so I guess it's um it's going to be interesting to see how that works out. But there's a you know this to me looks like a very good application firewall. If you're using something like a Cisco ASA and its application inspection, this looks pin for pin pretty much as good as if you're stepping up to the threat uh, to the firepower where you get some of the feeds and stuff like that. Then there's a gap there. But I would you know this is an interesting. It might be worth a read and a look and have a think about where it might fit for you. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly if you're building out, you know, uh, microservices or distributed uh, environment and you want to have uh, layer seven protection uh, for some of those applications, this is an opportunity. Again, they, they've, in the notes, they're talking about how much they've designed it specifically for a kind of DevOps environment. It's all API driven. It can uh, integrate with things like you know, Terraform uh, and Docker and so on to, so you can add it into your CICD pipeline, that kind of thing. Yeah, so it's API-driven, not just for the configuration, but for the deployment and the monitoring and all that sort of stuff. So right. And yeah. it also provides, you know, even if you don't turn on any security functions, you're still getting visibility into traffic, mm -hmm. performance, uh, HTTP requests, rates, that kind of thing. So it's got that visibility uh, infrastructure, which is always important in a microservices environment as well. So interesting yeah. stuff, lots of links, go check it out. Mm -hmm. All right, moving on. Uh, HPE announced its Q1 2021 financial results. They had revenues of $6.8 billion, which was down 2% year over year. They did not report net income, but they did have earnings per share of $0.17 cents per share, which is down from this time last year, where EPS was $0.25 cents per share. So in years gone by, we've talked about HPE as a bit of a fading jewel. You know, a bit of, maybe its best days were behind it, and it's getting a little bit old and frumpy. Um, and of course, in the days of Meg Whitman, she tried to turn the company around and really sort of took it in, a, you know, didn't seem to do a very good job of whatever it was that she did. I think uh, Antonio Neri's got things right here. But in this particular quarterly announcement, the thing that struck me was that he opened with a discussion around networking as a lead with the analysts. And those types of things are carefully choreographed. You can't just... Um, <laughs> you don't just show up and start analysts, spouting off, yes. Yeah, exactly. It's not like a casual chat. These things are carefully orchestrated. They're covered by SEC rules. So he actually said, and I'll just quote from the thing, we're seeing continued traction from our investment at the edge, including rich software capabilities like our Aruba ClearPass security, our cloud native Aruba Central, and most recently Aruba ESP, our edge services platform. Our Aruba SaaS revenue grew triple digits. And he goes on to say, the first full quarter following our Silver Peak acquisition reinforces that we are on track to grow the SD-WAN and so forth. And then he goes on to talk more about the data center as well. So in particular with the data center, he talks about we introduced a new class of cloud native and fully automated data center switching products specifically designed for the edge cloud data centers. 
which represents a $12 billion TAM expansion opportunity for Hewlett Packard Enterprise. I think what you're actually reading between the lines in that, I would say that HP is now entering the networking market full time. In the past, it, you know, when it acquired Aruba, it sort of got into the campus mm-hmm. and it was sort of happy just to sort of play at the fringes. But the data center, they went through a phase of sticking with Cisco and then they went with um, Arista for a while. And then suddenly they've come back, snapped back to having their own. And I think we're going to see much more of HP as a fully integrated provider, which is something they've never been. They've never done networking well in the last 20 or 30 years. They've always kind of, you know, not attacked the data center in the WAN and left it elsewhere, you know, not really grabbed a hold of that opportunity. No, absolutely not. But over the past few years, we've covered frequently how Aruba has been pushing into the switch market. It's got a new OS, it's got new hardware, that kind of stuff. So yeah, they are making a push. And I will note uh, probably the reason Antonio Neri led off talking about the Intelligent Edge business unit, that's the only one that showed growth for this quarter. So (laughs) lead with the good stuff. (laughs) Lead with the good stuff. I think it's interesting though, because I think we're seeing a collision now between HP and Cisco. Like of course, HP's GreenLake is this consumption infrastructure model where you rent your infrastructure per VM and they'll just supply the hardware for you. And of course, if you're supplying that as a turnkey on a HCI, you need to have your own networking portfolio to complement that. Mm -hmm. And so I think HP has to knuckle down and get stuck into networking. I think we're seeing Dell do something similar. We're seeing their networking business get much more revitalized and, you know, they're choosing to use Sonic on their uh, devices, but they're also getting into third parties operating the network, you know, the, the VMware getting into the, to the LAN stuff much more the networking features are in VMware. So I suspect that Cisco will struggle to maintain control of the data center. It increasingly networking will be determined by your server brand, not by your networking vendor of choice as such. Hmm, interesting. That would be an evolving thing over time because if you're buying, you know, Cisco's got the same things. If you're buying Cisco hyperconverged or, Dell hyperconverged or HPE hyperconverged, you're buying their networking by default. Right. They're not getting any other choice. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm glad to see Aruba making a stand in, in campus networking and trying to attack data center. I think, uh, I don't know how successful it's going to be in data center. Uh, I think it'd be more interesting for Aruba to move into the security space. They've already got a little bit of capability there, but there's Plenty of companies they could mm-hmm. buy to help the build out that portfolio. I think they did a good job with the Silver Peak acquisition and integration. So mm-hmm. they, they definitely got some mojo on the networking side. Yeah, I, and I also think the SmartNIC thing is going to change things. If the SmartNIC inside the server starts to become the edge of the network even more than it is now and accelerates the virtual switch in the data center, mm-hmm. then the actual physical network means is just it becomes less vital right it does mean so the days of the vlan being the king it actually starts to become you know if you've got a a smart neck that's got a half a dozen you know eight to 16 arm cores and it's doing a whole bunch of networking stuff in there you know monitoring visibility security firewalling and all that stuff that changes the shape of the land the data center land and, and what it looks like Right. And we get back to that debate about how much smarts do you want to shove into a switch versus how much smarts do you want to shove into software on the edge at, in a vm or a smart neck yeah, and, no, and we have customers fast dumb yeah, we switch. We haven't seen the SmartNIC thing come to come to fruition yet. It's still emerging, but yeah, you know that it becomes less of a, you know, I'm using Cisco because Cisco has these features and becomes a different discussion. It's I just need a network because all the features are in the server. Yep. Mm. Network's interesting. Network's interesting. Mm. A lot going on. 
All right, uh, this is our last uh, story for this uh, episode. Just a heads up, we are going to get into a little bit of geopolitics, so if you're not interested, you can just skip ahead to the tech bites at the end, but let's dive in. Uh, last week, the Biden administration issued its interim national security guidance, which happened to single out China as the primary challenger to a, quote, stable and open international system, end quote. Uh, that is, China, through the power of its combined technological, economic, and military strength, could threaten stable and open international systems. It also hints that the U.S. would respond to cyber attacks with its own cyber countermeasures, warning of swift response through, quote, cyber and non-cyber means. So just a little bit of saber rattling there. <laughs> I think it's a little bit of real politic, you know, it's a recognition that this is where politics is. Mm -hmm. um, I think I put this in for a reason. One of the themes that we have on the network break is that uh, the politics intersects with technology. And partly because of institutions like Google and Facebook, you know, dominating the discussion, but also because the vast majority of our our technology supply chain involves China, uh -huh. and anything that impacts that supply chain is something you might want to be thinking about, perhaps. And if you're a, a lead uh, architect or whatever, and you see a disruption happening, like we saw with the pandemic, you might want to be planning that in or having that in the back of your mind. And most hardware is built and assembled and packed in China today. You know, you read articles and they talk about China being the factory of the world and that type of stuff. Uh -huh. um, and I think up until now, Western politics, you know, the whole G8 particularly, has sort of put aside the previous policy of just saying, if we trade enough with China, then they'll become more open. You know, if business will create right. a democratic society there, that trade requires openness and society. And I think that China has demonstrated that a controlled and regulated market, to some extent, gives them a competitive advantage that general capitalism does not or democratic capitalism does not. And you're going to see um, governments saying outsourcing of people and offshoring of factories is going to become much more of a hot topic. And we're going to see pushback um, from that, I think. Uh -huh. And if you start having companies move factories or set up established factories with political support with subsidies then the previous situation of lowest prices fastest possible delivery can become compromised i come from a time when governments would pick winners and give them substantial subsidies to set up factories in locations and right. those factories were inefficient and not the best or they made bad products but because they had the subsidies they were able to continue to stay in business for longer than they might have otherwise so right. Mm. <laughs> so you're wondering about maybe uh, the U.S. funding uh, silicon manufacturing in the United States? I think, yeah, but I think it also has to happen uh, in the sense that, you know, there's obviously a divergence in strategy between where the Chinese government wants to be and where the G8 wants to go. And I think they're realizing that their supply chains are under threat, so they'll start to make moves. And there's also, you know, Chinese uh, government is not, um, running a perfect operation either. There's lots of articles that I've seen where they talk about the central managed economy that they have has enormous problems related to waste and inefficiency. And mm -hmm. inside the, you know, the organization itself, there's a lot of poor leadership and corruption. So I'm not trying to hide any of that. I'm telling you, just that's not the discussion that we're going to have here. This is not a politics podcast, right? Um, but I think what we are seeing is there's going to be a much more confrontational, but very gentle sort of pushing on China. And this piece from China, from Biden saying that he labels China a top tech threat is the first part for um, driving the, the bureaucracy of any government and probably many governments to start saying, we're going to push back on China. And 
part of the Huawei thing that we've talked about over the last three years is the government's pushing back and saying, we need to stop Chinese technology um, from dominating the market. That's an aspect. It's not the only reason they push back, but that's one of them. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're definitely in a strange relationship with China where many of our industries, particularly in the tech sector, rely on components from China. And that gives mm -hmm. China an advantage, um, but China also wants that trade. So they have to be careful with how they try to squeeze that advantage. Um, and it's clear, I mean, we just talked about a cyber attack at the top of the show that has been attributed to a nation state actor, China, um, attacking universities and government agencies to steal secrets that <laughs> the U.S. <laughs> government is going to frown upon that and try to take steps to prevent it. So, yeah, we're we're in very interesting times and definitely the policy of mm -hmm. let's engage openly with China because the, you know, the, the benefits of capitalism will create a more open environment in, and, and more open government have not played out. And so we've got to reassess mm -hmm. our strategy. Well, it hasn't played out yet, right? <laughs> it certainly had some impact. The, the, you know, the rise of Hong Kong and, you know, the manufacturing processes has created social change on a scale that we can hardly imagine. But that doesn't mean that the Western government should not, you know, take steps to protect themselves. So, yeah. and that has potential impact. So what you're looking, what I think I'm looking for, and whether you think that or not, you know, be interested to hear your feedback, packetpushes.net slash FU, is that this might disrupt the supply chains that we expect to be smooth. We've had years and years of really smooth supply chains and unlimited demand and just-in-time delivery. Uh -huh. And in the last 12 months, partly due to the pandemic, but also partly due to the political situation, we've had much more disrupted supply chains. We've had vendors announcing their stock market results and saying, if only we had more supply, we could have sold more products and stuff right. like that. Right. And I think those are the sorts of things we're going to see coming forward, as well as other things that are yet to emerge. And that could be part of your IT planning cycle. If you've got a risk management strategy, you you might want to put on there, you know, Chinese, US, Chinese G8 relations is a concern. I mean, I think that supply chain point is really um, relevant here because a lot of folks are basing their infrastructure strategy on just in time. And if your provider doesn't have it, <laughs> you're kind of stuck. So you may want to get a few more boxes in the warehouse just in case. Yeah. I mean, moving your packaging from China to Vietnam to get around the ch the import restrictions isn't isn't really what was set out to achieve, right? Right, exactly. Everything's still made in China, and then it goes to Vietnam to be repackaged and put in a box. Right. Not entirely sure that. So, yeah. Yeah. All right, link in the show notes to the article we drew that from that ends our network break episode. Please stick around for a Tech Bytes conversation on SD-WAN with sponsor Fortinet. We're talking to the customer Wavin about deploying SD-WAN for factories and offices at more than 100 locations. That's coming right up. You're listening to the Tech Bytes podcast from the Packet Pushers. Today's conversation is about an SD-WAN deployment with a company called Wavin. That's a solutions provider for the building and infrastructure industry. Our guest is Gerben Bremer. He is managing network services EMEA at Wavin. He's deployed over 100 SD-WAN appliances from Fortinet, and Fortinet is the sponsor for today's episode. Gerben, welcome to the podcast. And first, uh, thanks for conducting this interview in English because I couldn't do it in Dutch. Uh, so can you tell us what was it that you were looking for in an SD-WAN solution, and then how did you get to Fortinet? Andrew, well, thank you. We were looking for uh, a replacement of our Uniper Firewall uh, ecosystem. Basically, we were looking for an integration for one box for all solutions we were looking for. So you wanted one box that could do everything. You wanted a firewall, a router, SD-WAN, all in one package. Yes. We had multiple solutions in place. So we had a, a Uniper Firewall and some traffic shaper on top of it. Mm -hmm. And we were looking for SD-WAN capabilities. 
Uh, and that's how we ended up with uh, Fortinet. So that's that classic branch stack router, proxy appliance, firewall, scanning, Wi-Fi switches, and every branch was a really costly exercise in terms of capital, but also to operate. Yes, from management perspective, it was uh, difficult um, since we had multiple uh, appliances and um, um, it, it needed operational downtime and uh, operational maintenance. And if we do changes, we, we could have impact on, on other systems. So from operational and management point of view, um, I, I like the concept of, of putting everything into one box. Okay, so you were looking for that integrated appliance security and SD-WAN. So did you get to Fortinet uh, quickly or did you look around, have a look around at the market and see what your options were? We had a look around in the market. Uh, we also looked at uh, other vendors. We looked at cloud solutions. Mm-hmm. But the problem is we've got factories. Those factories uh, need protection. Uh, inside the factories, we 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 looked for uh, uh, several solutions that could also give us on-premise security what we needed, and also give us the external connectivity, so the SD-WAN uh, solution, and that's why we ended up with Fortinet. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? What you mean by what you wanted to do? Did you mean you were buying other products from Fortinet to use inside the factories, or there's something you can do with SD-WAN to help secure traffic going in and out of the factory sites? Yeah, so we were using the, um, the Uniper solution to protect our uh, inside network, which was which was running fine. Uh, we we um, uh, they gave us a good product uh, protecting that uh, internally, uh, but we also needed something to protect our external mm-hmm. uh, um, yeah resources, so web services, uh, cloud products, etc. So for this purpose, we had a look at uh, Fortinet. SD-WAN solution that could give us visibility of that traffic, but also implement directly security for all the streams that go to the WAN. So, for example, web filtering, application proxying, SCADA analysis uh, for for the on-premise, of course. Can I ask a question? Because sometimes this factory networking is a little bit new to people. So we're seeing a lot of the factories be talked about as IoT, which really just means machines and technology that's in factories is now IP enabled. And they're streaming off telemetry or monitoring interfaces or operational interfaces are now network connected. And it was important to you to secure that. Is that is there any particular features in the Fortinet that help you with that? Yes. In the newer releases of the Fortinet, there's a, a solution to uh, protect operational technology. Uh, for example, we can do scan analysis. Uh, so we can see if somebody is uh, accessing our PLCs or mm-hmm. running commands towards our PLCs. And that kind of security is the kind of security we need, especially for the future, because uh, we get more and more PLCs. Uh, since we are a production company, uh, we have a lot of production sites, and um, all of these sites are getting more and more equipment. That's a feature I've not heard of before. It's not something that anybody else has listed to me that there's actually like a, an industrial firewalling feature in the product. Yeah, because those are usually separate specific products for the SCADA industry, right? Yes, and we, we do also do have uh, additional products, and mo- mostly they are created to monitor because mm-hmm. you don't want to influence OT processes. Right. <laughs> But from a firewall perspective, so from management uh, point of view, if there's traffic going to an OT network, we want to do additional uh, security uh, features. 
And mm. that's what uh, Fortinet is offering. I guess also too, it's the people who work at factories now have computers and are using computers. Whereas five years ago, they would have been operating them with the computers built into the machines. And now they actually have computers and they sit in offices and operate them remotely. Is that a factor too? It's a complete different world than five years ago. There's a complete transition ongoing. We, we were going from traditional uh, engineered systems to mm-hmm. IP-based systems. So we have to learn our staff IP. Um, mm-hmm. So they, they, these are traditional engineers and we need to learn them how to protect their network, how to segment, how, how, IP, uh, how, how IP networks work, which requirements they should give on equipment. Because it's like info- cooling systems and heating systems and like in factories now, everything's connected to a network. Everything as far is as- connected. Airflow, you know, if you're doing a, mach- a factory that's doing, you know, uh, HEPA filtered air to keep the dust out during the manufacturing process, you're monitoring the power, you're monitoring the operational status, you're monitoring the dust per millions and that sort of stuff. Exactly. We, we have production lines that in the past we had one or two sensors on them. Now mm-hmm. we have over 100 sensors on them and they're all IP based nowadays. Right. And, um, to give a simple example, we um, we make our lightning of our factory smart. So um, the, the lightning bulbs are also controlled by IP. Um, and you don't want that one system can affect the other. So um, it's all segmented. It's all uh, protected by our uh, Fortinet firewalls. So uh, on the SD-WAN front as well, I assume you're also, are you getting into the cloud and did that have uh, an influence on how you wanted to build your connectivity? Like are you using leased lines or MPLS and you wanted to move away from that? Yes, we, we still had some MPLS lines in, in place. And since our factories are literally in the middle of nowhere, we have a lot of different ISPs. Uh, we have a lot of different connection methods. So we were looking for a solution that, yeah, basically could connect anything mm-hmm. so we can phase out MPLS. So that's that our approach was uh, bring any any provider or bring any any type of technology, 4G, 3G, 5G, whatever, mm-hmm. connect it and let the device do the um, intelligence. So how does that look like? Let's say we have an application, uh, Office 365. Um, the user uh, uh, tries to access it. The, the appliance looks, hey, this is the best path at this moment for mm-hmm. Office 365. So we use the application steering to directly send it over that path. And that, that works very well. And then the, the problem was with uh, MPLS, we had guarantees over, over uh, bandwidth. And, and we could actually trust the uh, provider that um, we had uh, certain uh, quality. Mm. With Fortinet now, we can see by using the um, uh, Fortinet solutions and Forti Analyzer, uh, we can see what the quality of our links are. And we can see, so we get a little bit that control back uh, <laughs> what we used to have with MPLS. <laughs> you can trust, but verify as well. You don't have to just take the ISP's word for it that they're meeting their SLAs. You can actually look for yourself now. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, well, we had some dashboards uh, from the ISP uh, in the past where we could see the performance, and um, but not as in depth nowadays with uh, the Fortinet appliance. So we're quite happy with that. And it, yeah, it, it just by bringing in multiple lines, uh, 
and of course working in the cloud because uh, yeah we we um, we tend to uh, migrate a lot um, uh, by by using the cloud uh, the MPLS became less and less important so. Mm. I think it's important for factories, for a lot of people to understand that factories don't exist in the center of New York sort of thing, you know, or in the, you know, in the high street of, of Belgium sort of thing. They're, they're actually in regional areas so that and nobody wants to live next to a factory. So they're often in, you know, oh, lots of empty space and telcos don't go running fiber optic down the streets to those buildings. And you often get second rate telecommunications. And in the past, those factories didn't want telecommunications, right? So there's a real change there where telcos are saying, well, you know, a factory takes up 10 acres or 20 acres. Why would I run a cable out there to speed up the access? So you've got to make the most of what you've got. Exactly. And that's, that's the problem we're facing at a lot of sites. And uh, yeah, the, 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 the most hurted reason was that the ground is much cheaper if, if you buy it in the middle of nowhere. And since we need a lot of it, that's the, that's the main reason. The network so, comes uh, second. Yeah. <laughs> so when you started the engagement process for the, for the SD-WAN, how did you go about that? Did you just like get it and play with it? Was it as simple as that? No, we, we um, used a uh, managed service provider that helped us um, setting it up. And um, we, we actually took a lot of time designing it on how the traffic should look and uh, how we would implement it. Because I think that's the most important part. If you do an SUN implementation, spend some more time on the design, spend more mm-hmm. time on the, yeah, the way you want the device to behave. Mm-hmm. Then on the implementation, because if you do the design properly, you can implement very fast. Use the tooling, use Forti Manager. Uh, so use the the um, uh, tools that are available to make it rapidly deployable. You talked there about design, but when you actually got to it, so a lot of people say that SD WAN was pretty easy to get going and to get it rolled out. Was that your experience as well? Like we always talk about spending time in design and getting it right, but I think with SD WAN, it's actually much easier to get into the implementation phase than it is with the old, you know, router, firewall, inspection, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's absolutely true. But if we add a lot of uh, uh, lines, just to give you an example, um, you need to have a certain rule set. So also in terms of priority. Uh, so uh, you need to think on forehand, what are my top priority applications mm-hmm. and, and make rules for those. So they have always the best line. And if you, if you don't configure anything, of course, the SD-WAN will do its utmost best to, um, to send the traffic over the right path. But if, if there is congestion or if you don't have enough bandwidth, Mm. then the rules come uh, uh, yeah, at, at place. So um, that's why you really need to think about designing it properly. So you're saying you had to take some time ahead of time to say, as the business, what applications do we want to prioritize and why before you started building rules and designs? Exactly. Yeah. Mm. yeah, that's it. And operating it. So now you've got it, it's in the ground, you've got it at over 100 sites, as we said in the intro. Uh, that could be painful. I don't think it is. From management perspective, we have a lot less management than before, um, simply because the intelligence is done within the within the device. So um, in case a line fails, we don't even notice most of the time. Yeah, we get some alerts, but the user doesn't 
know anything. And at, at, um, in the previous day, there was a lot more impact if, if a site uh, went down. And with MPLS, we had a lot more outages than using the SD-WAN solution. So from a management perspective, no, team got, uh, uh, got more time to spend on other items than uh, on incidents. Yeah, that's key. I think, you know, you can free up your staff to actually be advancing the business rather than just fighting fires. Exactly. Yeah. And that's uh, that's exactly where we want to go to, to spend less time on uh, on incidents and spend more time on innovation and helping the business uh, advance. Hmm. I, I heard this before. We've talked to other customers of SD-WAN, and one of the things that they always come around to is a centralized management console. Uh, and 40 Manager has this centralized repository of the configurations. It has visibility and analytics to tell you what the performance of the apps is like and where everything's, you know, all that stuff is done for you. It's not something you have to go and buy as an extra and run yourself, right? Yes, and that's what we use uh, as well. Uh, we use it um, uh, for 90 5% of all the settings we do on the firewall, it's uh, scripted or uh, put into an, uh, a template, um, which makes it easy because uh, all the firewalls are the same uh, mm -hmm. in terms of configuration management. Um, and it also um, prevents human error. Uh, sometimes you forget to configure something at the site. <laughs> Um, and uh, it also grows with, with the product. So let's say the, there's a new release and some features are added or removed. Um, then the pro since you are using the Forti Manager, uh, it will automatically um, enable or disable those features. Um, yeah, and that's why I think it's, it's very good to use the tools that are available from the vendor. And then the security stuff is in there as well. So your web filter is there, your DNS policy, your content filtering policy. All of the devices in your network get that centralized policy. You don't have to go around to each device and manually configure it separately. Exactly. And then coming back to the design, you first think about what, are, what is my default security policy and uh, what do I want as a web filter, DNS filter, and a content filter. And there is so much possible in, uh, in, the, in these solutions um, that you first need to think about how, how am I going to filter and how much do I want to filter. So. Mm -hmm. Also, in terms of visibility, we, we use the uh, Forti Analyzer in combination with the Forti Manager. We can see exactly um, what is blocked, how, uh, which computer might be infected, and, and do actions based on that. So the automation level is, is, is really good. Um, so we can automatically block uh, and, and um, automatically see or uh, get alerts in case of, uh, of um, too many incidents. Right. So, For sure. We're out of time, but thank you, Gerben, for joining us. And thanks to Fortinet for being a sponsor. You can find all about Fortinet's SD-WAN and security products at Fortinet.com. Uh, thank you for listening. If you like this episode, we've got many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog. That's at PacketPushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at PacketPushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>